And I think that ADHD is emerging more and more. And I think there is going to be such a thing as techno ADHD. And there's been research that even shows, starting to show, that even adults who did not show any ADHD of children, it was non-existent, that suddenly now as adults, they can be full-blown manifesting of ADHD. And my theory about why that is, is because of our relationship with technology, how it has shifted our brains. Facts do not have opinions. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Top of Real Everything. I'm here each week to dive deeper into how we can find happiness and health inside and out through self-love, body positivity, and discovering new ways to be our best selves. Before we get started, a reminder, this podcast is for general educational purposes and is not intended to diagnose, advise, or treat any physical or mental illness. And while David is a doctor, he's not yours. So we always recommend that you see a licensed health professional accordingly. And if you haven't already, I would love if you could please hit the subscribe button and also leave a review if you like the show. Consider it a holiday gift to me. This week, I'm excited to welcome David Sitt, who is a licensed clinical psychologist, lives in New York City. He has extensive experience as a therapist, evaluator, and educator. He's a tenured professor where he exposes undergrad students to psychology, cutting-edge research, and mysteries of the brain, all the things I'm into, listeners know. He also trains the next generation of therapists in CBT at the graduate level. As a clinician, Dr. Sitt specializes in treating adults with ADHD, anxiety, and mood disorders, which we'll talk about all go hand-in-hand hand together, employing validated modalities and innovative techniques. His expertise extends to consulting and executive coaching for thought leaders, corporations, and educational institutions, featured on Vice Media, The Howard Stern Show, and The New York Times. He resides in Brooklyn with his wife and their four children. I also have four children. So today we'll be specifically talking about neurodiversity and his book, ADHD Refocused, Bringing Clarity to the Chaos. And it provides a fresh perspective on living with ADHD and provides practical tools, reliable hacks, and empowering mindsets to transform chaos into clarity. And I would say as the partner of someone with ADHD, it's also really helpful to read to understand someone else's perspective. It's not solely for those who have it, or if you're a parent or a loved one, it'd be great for educators, teachers, all that kind of stuff. So I know, David, you have learned from your own personal journey with being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult, which you share a lot about. And I know that we actually have a lot of listeners in that situation because I talk about neurodiversity a lot, given that I have children and a partner with it, which is not surprising to you because you talk about the genetic aspect in your book. But I think it's interesting how many people have reached out when I talk about neurodiversity, how helpful it is for them to have a self-understanding, self-compassion, and learn more about what they're experiencing or why it might be different from someone else. So I'm excited to chat more about all of that today. Welcome to The Whole View. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself that I may have missed? You did quite a great job, by the way. That was fantastic. Thank you uh, so much for you and your team doing such a great job of, of building out the background and bio. You, you covered so much. I would add only about myself that I'm a man who wears many hats. 
And among the hats that I'm most passionate about, aside from being an author and, and, and a therapist, is a, as an educator, as a professor. And one of the ways that I believe in teaching, as well as in the way that I conduct therapy and my coaching style, is experientially. Meaning to speak and draw out from your experiences and not get too lost in the ivory tower of the academia, right? Which is one of the hats that I wear is in the university setting, but I try not to be lost in that setting, but to move it into the experience of things. And the book that I wrote, ADHD Focus, very much was from my own experience and the clients that I work with. And my, like, I have four children, like you said, two of whom we know have ADHD at this stage. Uh, and so speaking from those experiences, and, and I believe, and I, I look forward today to talking to you and to all of our listeners out there today in, in a way that we can help bring out learning and knowledge from experience. So that's something I'm excited about today. Absolutely. I think between the two of us, we represent seven neurodiverse people. So for you to be aware, I think most listeners know, I have an 18-year-old son with ADD. I have a 13-year-old son with ADHD. My husband has whatever he has. I'm sure the classification is the same now at this point, but he's more uh, attention deficit than he is hyperactive. Uh, but also my youngest is on the spectrum. And so that has been an interesting journey for us to understand the nuance and the differences between them and not realizing that was a diagnosis for him for so long because there's such an overlap in symptoms and all kinds of executive function type thing that I know we're going to talk about. So what's interesting to me, though, is despite being in a very neurodiverse house and probably myself, I have ADD, but I just self-manage really well which my middle son is like that as well. Like I can see it in him, but our chaos is much more easily managed, right? Like we're, we have a better job with the executive function part. So I was surprised though, even knowing what I know and reading your book and seeing some of the statistics and facts that you shared. And I think one of the things that I hear a lot is this idea that too many people, like why are so many more people being with AD, being diagnosed with ADHD now versus blaming different things in the culture and food, all that kind of stuff versus looking at you laying out a timeline, for example, that it, ADHD wasn't even in the DSM until 1987 and ADD was put in only seven years earlier in 1980, which was when my husband was born. You know what I mean? So it's not like it was well-known or understood by medical professionals for most of us who are adults now. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experience in going through graduate school and overall kind of being a medical professional, what education and training you got on this topic, if at all. Because I know it's an awakening for you to later realize your own diagnosis. Yeah, I, I, one thing I want to just, as I enter into kind of talking through some of the points you bring up, ADHD, it, the, the terminology is something that has been evolving. The, the presence of an intentionally challenged brain has been known to us for quite some time, for decades. Even in the early editions of the DSM, 
different names were used to describe this experience. And there's been an evolution, as I lay out in the book, of our understanding of it. And we're continuing to, by the way, evolve. I predict that the DSM-6, which will be the next edition, will probably be a big jump from where we are even today in our understanding. Just by one example, we don't even talk about the emotional challenges and the emotional dysregulation that many of us relate to, the guilt, the shame, the depression, not mentioned at all in DSM. It will likely be in the next iteration. And so to your point, ADHD, ADD, it's been an evolution. And today, my personal experience and understanding of ADHD emerged from, as you noted, when I was diagnosed, which was later in life, relatively, many people are diagnosed these days as children and adolescents. That number has indeed risen significantly over the past two decades. We've seen a major jump. We could talk about the why and the different reasons, the theories behind that. But what we've also seen is a big jump in those who are adults getting diagnosed with ADHD, whereas it was never on our radar. I was a child born in, the, in, in 77, 1977, in the 80s while I was in school. It wasn't on the radar of my teachers, wasn't on the radar of my parents. I had one friend that I remember in elementary school who we knew had that, this hyperactivity thing, but that was it. I learned about it as a 22-year-old in graduate school from a professor who said, I, I noticed your style of being in the classroom is agitated and anxious and you're handing in things late and you're, there's things about you that are this fit into ADHD, you should really go get assessed. And I said, well, I'm not seven. I'm not a seven-year-old. What do you mean? I'm 22 years old. You can tell me now I'm ADHD. And uh, lo and behold, I went to get assessed and it, yeah, I've hit, I checked off so many of the boxes and um, it was eye-opening for me to understand that, uh, that it's so easy to go undiagnosed. And whether it be because some people may be high-functioning, maybe they're intelligent, maybe they could pull off the grades in the end and the process of the executive dysfunctionality that they go through, the fact that they were up till three in the morning or the fact that they were completely disorganized in their efforts, but they pulled it off, goes on, the background goes unnoticed by many. And so it's not surprising that I went through that system. I was fortunate to be smart enough to pull off good grades, but no one knew what was going on behind the scenes for me. So I had that, that journey. And I know that the clients that I speak to, I often hear adults who come to me in that network. Wasn't on our radar. They'll have similar stories. No one noticed. And, and women, we know in particular, really very difficult for people to notice the nuances of the underlying condition. Because even more so, there's less externalization of, of the hyperactive side or the impulsive side. The emotionality we're not seeing in the same way. We're, we're labeling it incorrectly. So many of us go through many years without being assessed and diagnosed. I think that's spot on and aligns to a lot of what I read in ADHD Refocus. I think it would be helpful, and I'm curious to hear a little bit about the differences that you see when you're working with someone who's been diagnosed as an adult versus someone who's diagnosed as a youth. 
And I was like an asterisk to that. I have a lot of hope because the supports that my youngest is getting in school to be the best version of himself and for people to understand and make accommodations to set him up for success are entirely different than the experiences that my husband had. But if you're being diagnosed later in life, you probably have a lot of maladaptive coping that you did to get through, right? So it's when you meet someone who's diagnosed as an adult versus someone who was diagnosed younger, I'm sure they present entirely differently. I'm curious about that. It's a really great question, Stacey. And I, I don't believe I've ever been asked that question in that way. And it's an astute one. Um, and I'm going to answer on the fly as we unfold here. I would say that for those who show, those who get a diagnosis early in life, in their elementary school years, let's say, the advantage is that they have time to integrate their awareness and identity and identification with this ADHD brain of theirs. They may be more inclined to get educated about modifications and accommodations and techniques. So my oldest uh, child is now 10 and he was diagnosed about two or three years ago and he's very vocal about his ADHD. We talk about it, we relate to it. He's developing techniques. We're framing things, but indelicately, because we're also trying to be aware not to create the stigma or this sense of, oh, well, it's my ADD, right? Which is so easy to hang your hat when things go wrong and say, no, it's my ADD or ADHD. And so, but when a person's young, we have time, we have space, we can integrate different support mechanisms and individuals that can help that child develop along with their ADHD. Okay. There are downsides also, maybe I can argue, maybe on this sense of the, the deep identification with ADHD, which delicate identification, how to, how to do so in a healthy way, where again, you don't uh, make it your Achilles heel, right? So is that delicacy, delicate balance. The, uh, the, and, and then, so when they show up to me, as adults saying, I was diagnosed many years ago. What I sometimes find is that they say, I've given up hope. I've had all these years of knowing I have ADHD. I've tried so many things. And now that I'm in college or now that I've graduated and I'm in the work world, I've tried so many things that I'm still challenged by it. And I feel a deeper sense of hopelessness. So because they had the diagnosis early and they, ADHD doesn't for many, most people, it doesn't go away. There's a small subset of people, usually those that have the predominant hyperactive impulsive as children, they, they sometimes quote unquote grow out of it or emerge away from it. But most people do continue along and there is a frustration level. And as adults, that exacerbation is something that I now have to handle and work on. And, and it's a separate kind of track or module that I'm integrating to my therapy or coaching with somebody. So that's some unique, but uh, someone shows up having never been diagnosed. And it's only now in adulthood that they're beginning to think and suspect because they listen to Stacy's amazing podcast. And they're listening now and they're thinking, maybe I need to reach out to a doctor, sit or to someone else to get evaluated. And now we're at the beginning of the journey. Actually, there's an excitement to it for some people. There's a novelty. What can I learn? How can I understand? How can I reframe 
or refocus, which is why I chose that title for my book, because there is a very big refocusing that we can go through that is stimulating and novel. And it's a different experience than the, the one who has had years of that frustration. So that, that would be one um, element that I would highlight of difference in how people present. And another thing that I would say is that those who have gone through the quote unquote system, also including medications, have similarly, right? There's a, the upside is I've found my medication. I know what combination works for me because I've been dealing with it for all these years. And my team of site, my prescribers over the years have, have tweaked and, and I know what works for me now. And someone who's new and fresh, they're just at the beginning. So again, upsides, downsides as to the, all those presentations. I think that one of the callouts from what you're saying is this idea of general mental health and how we process things, right? Like whether it's ADHD or whether it's something else that you find out later in life versus earlier in life, I think this idea of how you build your own identity and whether or not you adapt positively. I think it was interesting that you said that some people, very few people, but some people outgrow the impulsivity. And I would be willing to bet that nobody outgrows the impulsivity, but rather they adapt lifestyle or coping mechanisms to not act impulsively in ways that are identified in the outward world. But I can see from my own husband, for example, that his impulsivity manifests in ways of like picking up his phone and playing a game that he really doesn't want to do in that moment, right? And it hits the dopamine response. And I know we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but I think impulsivity is entirely different than when my kindergartner pinched someone who was making fun of him as a bully because he literally could not control himself from like the what we would call being in control of your body right like we now that he's 13 and in middle school have to work really hard on that because impulsivity is very hard for him and so I think a lot of people would meet him today and be like well he's really outgrown a lot of that stuff no he hasn't outgrown it he's worked really hard on developing ways to take a breath, to, you know, walk away from a situation, different kinds of things when that impulsivity rises. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, there is definitely a, that element of um, learning to adapt. Yeah. That occurs. And, uh, you know, all that there is talk in the literature about quote unquote growing out. I'm curious to see where that how that dialogue shifts and how our understanding of that changes because our understanding of how symptoms um, morph or how they are channeled or how they're redirected uh, is, I think, a still an emerging uh, conversation. I think we're going to find less and less of this quote-unquote outgrowing of it, to your point. Yeah, and I think that aligns too with what you were saying about biological females being diagnosed or whether it's younger or older in that there is more dialogue and openness and being able to say that there is a different expectation for behavior of females. And when in school, there's a lot of, it's sad but true, excuses for, well, 
little boys are more rambunctious. And so they're given more opportunity to move their body or do what they need to do to um, outwardly show that they are ADHD, but still be able to focus or be themselves, so to speak. Whereas a biological female has sadly a greater expectation to behave, to sit and do all of these sort of things that were built from this ultimately misogynistic viewpoint from hundreds of years ago about how proper little girls should behave. And I wonder if now that there is more talk and recognition of that, if females are diagnosed at a younger age and how we see things play out over time, like what that would look like 20 30 years from now, right? Like, I think that dialogue has an important role to play in the symptoms that we see in people. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I think among the disorders or, or syndromes that we might talk about in the DSM, ADHD is a, a really an evolving conversation. There is so much context is relevant. That as we're talking about now, even this conversation of expressiveness in, in biological men versus biological women, these are evolving and emerging knowledge bases. Even like I said, the whole concept of emotionality and how that isn't referenced in the DSM is a fascinating blind spot to our anecdotal understanding of ADHD. So it is, it, it bears conversation. And I think where we are today, because of conversation, Stacey, that you saw this as a relevant conversation. You invited me on to the podcast to have a dialogue. And it is discussed way more than certainly was a decade ago. In adults, we didn't talk about adult ADHD. When I was in graduate school, when I was diagnosed 25 years ago, I had to go to a child psychologist. There, were, there was no, no one specialized in adult ADHD. The, the conversation wasn't mentioned, even the DSM at the time. Then it added on as parenthetical, and now it's going to emerge as its own potential standalone. It's just such a fascinating evolution in our yeah. understanding of this. And then I know you noticed that in my book, I talk a lot about technology and the massive impact that our devices and our interaction with phones and tablets and computers and now AI powered technology. It is such, you cannot have the conversation about attention and awareness without understanding the relationship with technology. Okay. This podcast is brought to you by Nom Nom Dog Food, who are gifting your fur friends a no risk two week trial at half off. I have paid for our subscription with my own money for over a year. Our dogs have truly never been happier with their food or healthier. Even our vet noticed how well they're doing and commented on how great their weight and health is. Less itching, less stinky paws, more shiny coat, and literally nom nom noises when meals are served. Gus and Penny love it which feels like such a gift considering how difficult it was to get Penny to eat for so long. 
Nom Nom uses the latest science and insights to make real nourishing food personalized to your dog's needs. I took a quiz when we first started and went with their board certified veterinary nutritionist recommendation to ensure that the exact right food and portions were given. And I love knowing that not only is it good for them, but it's costing us less money too. I did not realize how much our prior freeze dried food was was three times as expensive and we still had to put human food on it to get Penny to eat. Nom Nom does not have any additives or fillers and if your dog has sensitivities like ours, their pet microbiome database helps create better recipes for every breed, size, and digestive sensitivity. The low inflammatory food is nutrient-packed and made fresh, shipped to your door, free, all cooked in company-owned kitchens in the U.S., Nom Nom's already delivered over 40 million meals to good dogs just like yours. So why not try it? Go right now for 50% off your no-risk two-week trial at trynom.com slash wholeview. Spelled trynom.com slash wholeview for 50% off. Trynom.com slash wholeview. Plus, Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee, so if your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. Absolutely, and I definitely want to talk about that because I have talked for years since my children were very young and diagnosed about how we've handled technology because of what we've seen, so I think that's a really good point in terms of how you're seeing it as a medical professional and where you think it's going. Uh, But I do want to talk about this emotional element that you talk about, because I think this is one of the biggest misconceptions that I find, especially with teachers and other medical professionals, right? You hear the term attention deficit disorder, and most people that I encounter think that this manifests specifically to attention and focus. But we've mentioned that impulse control is really one of the biggest things that we have a problem with in our house. And we have extreme anxiety and depression. My husband specifically had like a lifetime of maladaptive behavior, specifically lying, which is very common among people who have ADHD. And I want to give context to this because people might not realize like, I you know, see TV shows like romance reality shows or a movie and people say something like, oh, well, if I can't trust my partner, then I can't love the person I can't be with them. I'm like, I can't trust that my partner unloaded the dishwasher if he told me that he unloaded the dishwasher because he spent a lifetime of forgetting to do a chore, being afraid to tell his parents and building up this neural pathway in his head of saying, yeah, I unloaded the dishwasher because he didn't want to get in trouble. Guess what? We all know you did it unload the dishwasher, right? So there are a lot of things from like a trust perspective that partners of people with ADHD, I think, need to be prepared for and compassionate about. And we had to go to marriage counseling before we were even married because I had such a hard time understanding how someone could look me in the face and just lie to me. And unfortunately, the therapist that my husband had early on was horrible, like just a horrible therapist and taught him the thing that you said earlier, like, oh, just hang your hat on the fact like, well, that's my ADHD with no accountability of that's a habit that's not healthy. And 
we need to break that habit. Yes, it's coming from a place of you forgot this, that, or the other, but that doesn't mean that it's okay to lie to your partner. It doesn't mean that it's okay to lie to anyone at all. And there have been points in our marriage where he's lied about things that I wasn't sure we could get over. And it took a lot of work. We've been married 22 years next month. That it takes a lot of work, especially when you have a neurodiverse family as well, who I'm constantly like, please do not teach them this bad habit. Like, please do not do the thing that I, I need you not to model this for them. And I think ultimately people don't really understand to what you said earlier, this guilt, the shame around being different, right? Uh, not having compassion for yourself and really leaning into your strengths versus trying to do what everybody else is doing. So I'm wondering if you can give more insight into that psychological perspective, which I think is really important for people to understand about ADHD. There's so much in, you know, how you framed this question about the the influence of our emotional management or mismanagement um, or dysregulation is a term that that has emerged uh, so many terms that have emerged in our again evolving dialogue in the community about ADHD right so we talk about things like rejection sensitivity dysphoria big words right what we're talking about this idea of even in the ADHD person and your husband may have had this experience, right? Where still does, rejection, yep. <laughs> right? And, and by the way, as do I, and my wife is also a clinical psychologist, Dr. Ayla Sitt, amazing, brilliant, incredible woman who studies psychology and knows ADHD well, because she lives with me. And, and we even joke around and suspect she's somewhere on that spectrum too. And I've talked about my own rejection sensitivity that if I ask, um, can, can we watch this show together? I'd like to sit down tonight and let's spend some time tonight with or maybe off of our phones or from social media. Let's watch the show. And I'll suggest the show. And she might say, you oh, know, I'm not interested in that show. And I I will feel it so powerful. It's like daggers. Like you you don't want to watch the show that I want to watch with you. And I the rejection is so intense. And I don't realize it in the moment unless I I'm bringing that kind of hyper awareness to that mindfulness to bear. Um and your husband, right? I, if I don't unpack the, if, if, if I get in trouble for, for that, I don't unpack the dishwasher, I'm, that's going to feel terrible. So I'm just going to lie and say I did it because the rejection of that is so powerful. And the guilt, and you said the shame and the, the constant. When I go through my own procrastination cycles, and I went through one this week, I was preparing an exam for my class here at, at the university that I teach at Peru College here in New York City. I have an exam coming up. And I pushed it a little bit to, to, to the last minute. Of, and I stayed up till two in the morning a few nights ago getting it done. And I felt so guilty about that. And I felt like the shame. I'm, I'm a professor for 20, I don't even know how many years already. And I'm still, I can't easily get my work done in advance. Luckily, I do get it by that deadline, but I feel guilty. I feel shame. And then I do my, once I'm aware of it, Right. So I become aware that's the A, then I redirect myself, right? I, I move myself over and I tell myself, well, let's move it here and realize that I got distracted by this emotion. And let me bring the level of care, right? C, right? So I'm aware of something. 
I forgot in my moment how I call my B, but I redirect myself and then I bring care to myself, right? So that I feel that it's okay. It's okay, right? That's part of my experience. I'm doing the best that I can. And if I don't take care of that emotional down spirals, those down spirals, we as adults, neurodiverse adults, we'll be stuck in the mud a lot. And it's really hard to pull ourselves out of that mud that, and we keep pouring water into the, every time we pour water, the mud gets thicker, we get thicker and we get stopper. We have to do work. And that work is, in my opinion, as important as learning how to manage a calendar and learning how to manage my, my various um, tasks that I have to lay out. And it's as important as my building awareness not to be impulsive in my communication with, with people. Emotional management is paramount. And it's a big misunderstanding. Many clinicians, I will tell you, who don't know ADHD well, do not, do not factor it in because it's not mentioned in, their, in our guidebook in the DSM. So they won't even ask you about it. And they may not even treat you for that element of the ADHD experience because if they're not an expert in the ADHD world, they're just following that DSM guideline. So it's very important that we train people to, I just remembered my ABC, by the way, right? Because my brain does that. It goes, has moments where we have awareness of drifting away, where we bring it back as the B, bring it back to where, to this present moment, and then C, bring a lot of care and love to myself. That's my formula for helping the emotional side of things. I think that makes a lot of sense in it also reminds me of a concept that you brought up, which is this idea of telling yourself not now or I'll do it later. And this is something that I hear and see a lot between all of my ADHD-ers. That's not an easy thing to say. I, by the way, I personally pull in and Mix out. Mix and mingle. Yeah. Um, I just say ADD. It's fast. All my neurodiverse yeah. people. I notice, and it. this is one of the things that really drives me batty. A lot of the things I've come to understand, I see the rejection sensitivity so strongly. And it's easier for me to do something like make a phone call than for one of them to struggle immensely with the idea of making a phone call. And for years, I was like, why can't you just pick up the, like the people at the electric company are waiting for your call. They're not going to reject you. Like, but the, I don't know, the apocalypse might happen in his brain if he makes a phone call. So I'm like, it's fine. I'll call the electric company. So there's a lot of things that I think we did a show earlier where we talked about ADHD, a partnership. And I think like really understanding how to be a partner with someone who has these characteristics or struggles in any sort of way, like being a good partner is creating that balance with someone, right? And knowing that my husband does not have executive function, but he's excellent at executing means that our partnership works because I'm really good at making lists. I'm really good at keeping track of everything, but that means that I carry the mental load. And so sometimes we need to come together and communicate on a break for me to not be responsible for everything all the time. But one of the things that drives me batty, because I am the one keeping track of everything, is this idea of not right now, and then it doesn't get done. And then I'm responsible again for coming back and saying, hey, 
did you do the thing? Knowing that he didn't do the thing. Hey, can you do the thing? Can you do the thing? And the answer is always, oh, well, I'll do that when I get home or I'll do that tomorrow. I'll do that later. And what was interesting is when you were talking in your book, like I had always thought that this was more closely related to simply being distracted, right? To be hyper-focused in the moment and with having the intention to do it later, but being like, I'm in this moment right now, I'm not going to deviate from that, which it might be. And I do wholeheartedly think that most people do have the intention to do it differently. But you explained it in a different sort of way that helped me honestly have compassion for something that's been driving me nuts for many years. I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit about why that delay happens other than the hyperfocus. They are, it's, these are one of those dialectic moments where it's not necessarily one or the other as a reason. It is very much an end, right? There are multiplicity of factors that might switch on in a given moment for a particular scenario. And in another scenario, it might be a different combination that turns on or off. And so let's talk maybe perhaps about some of those elements. One of them being, as you described, right, that there is sometimes for us in with this neurodiverse brain, one of the elements of it is the craving for optimal stimulation. And the experience that we have in a moment of being hyper-focused which is one of our quote-unquote people love to talk about that superpower of ADHD is hyperfocus, which indeed is an amazing experience. I can tell you when I was up till two in the morning that other night working on my exams, it felt great. It felt great. I was in the zone. I was cruising. I had some music on. I knew that I was getting it done because I was in that hyperfocus zone. As I talk about in the book, it's, it's like being in a boat and rowing down the river. I was told that there's rapids coming. I was told. Or I know there's rapids somewhere along the route, there will be a drop and that's a dangerous drop, but I'm not there yet. So I'm just going to put the oars down and I'm going to chill. I'm going to take in the, the, the chill. Then when I see or hear the rapids, I pick up those oars and I am the best rower you've ever seen. Hopefully I haven't crashed down the waterfall. Most of us have. Most of us have had that experience where we think we're going to grow well and, and it turns out we didn't. We underestimated the current. We underestimated the fact that there was other boats in the way or that there was rocks or there, whatever. We underestimated and we've crashed. We've all had those. But that experience of locking into hyperactivity sometimes is what we crave to get something done, even for a simple thing as call the electric company. I want to be in the zone. Okay, that's one variable. And I talk about this as the now, not now experience, right? Like when something comes down like conveyor belt, Right, comes down like a belt, comes to that, comes to that, it comes to my station, and I'm like, green light, red light. Now, not now, because I'm searching in me to see if I'm ready to lock into that stimulated, dopamine enhancing, producing, get it done now moment. If so, I hit the green button, I get my hands on it, I take care of it. If not, I, I slam on that red button, not now, and the canary belt opens up a floor and the thing just pulls out of existence just drops out of my mind. I don't even see it. I don't hear about it. Not now. I'll deal with it later. The proverbial snooze goes into effect and I'm not bothered by it. I'm okay. It bothers you, Stacey, to watch me snooze it, right? Your husband might say, but for me, because I'll get to it later when the rowing happens. And I believe me, I'll get to it when the right time is. 
that's one variable. The other variable, it's almost like a sub-variable, is this drive towards uh, perfectionism. It's a very common experience for us to feel like I've got to get it right. I've got, and it's not exclusive to the ADHD brain. It is not. Many people experience this in different ways, but because for us, it's looped together with other variables, I got to get it just optimized. I talk about this term in my old family with my wife, optimization. I got to optimize it because otherwise the boredom that might settle in, like if I'm not completely ready to go, I might get bored. I might not be super interested and that's like daggers in the eyeball. <laughs> You'd have to sit and make a phone call to the electric company now when I'm not feeling it. Uh, so that variable of feeling like, no, because right now I have other things that I've decided in my machination of my brain need to be taken care of. Now, there's something else on the conveyor belt that I decide is now and calling the electric company is not now. I had to call to get an insurance, a new insurance quote for my home. And because that some issue came up with my current insurance carrier and I decided I was going to change insurance. Just, I didn't like the way they were managing something. Okay. I put it off for, I got the notice months ago, maybe in May. And they told me you have until December 15th. When did I call to get this done? Well, I was heading away for a weekend somewhere on Thursday. So I called. Wednesday at four o'clock before I knew in my brain optimization, I was going to be out of the loop Thursday to Monday. I don't want to be at the river, at the waterfall. I'll go a little bit before I called on Wednesday, December 10th. That's when I did it. I had months to do it. It's been on my list every week. I, I rewrite it again. So there's almost like this perfectionistic, I got to get it just right. And if there's other things occupying the conveyor belt, that's going to get my attention now. Those are just two of the variables. And the emotion is the third variable. How am I going to feel emotionally about the thing that I need to do? Is there a chance of getting rejected? Is there a chance that I might face some hardship or some failure or some resistance to the thing that I was told to do, even if it's putting away the dishes? Rejection sensitivity, dysphoria, don't want to deal with that. It's another one of the variables that goes into my now, not now decision. And so it tends to leave other people frustrated because we do a lot of not knowing. We are celebrating the one year anniversary of MOGRA, the first federal health protective personal care legislative change since 1938. Thank you for supporting my business, for contacting your legislators, and for being part of this community. I am so proud of this work, and we aren't done yet. FDA has already stayed implementation of MOCRA for another six months, which means we will be continuing to fight this good fight together for a while. If you want to give the brand that literally changed America's personal care industry a try, I've got an exclusive offer for you. Give Beauty Counter a try with code CLEAN4ALL20, and if you don't love it, you have 60 days to return it, no questions asked. Even better, let me recommend a few products for you. I love helping you pick out just the right thing to love the skin you're in. Email me, Stacy at realeverything.com if you want help. Made with sustainable, fair trade, and skin-nourishing ingredients, Beauty Counter is a B Corp focused on people and planet. 
Plus, Shopping With Me supports my woman-owned small business, and you're voting with your wallet by choosing a certified B Corp whose mission is to get safer products into the hands of everyone through health protective laws while also giving back to people and the planet through sustainable fair trade ingredients. Go to beautycounter.com slash Toth, just like any other website, and choose me, S-T-A-C-Y-T-O-T-H, so that I can thank you. And I think it's so helpful to understand that as the partner or as someone who loves someone that has ADHD. Obviously, maybe it's not this way for everybody, but I have a lot more compassion and patience for my children because I'm like, oh, my adult husband should have figured this out by now. And then I have to remind myself, should is a judgment word. That's not helping. He's doing the best he can. He intends to do well. He intends to be a helper. But I think it all comes from this place of the efforts that are being made that someone can do. But really what I have to remind myself is that it is a chemical and physical difference between someone who is neurotypical, so to speak, right? And I think your description of underground fibers and how neurons in our brains and nervous system in a neurotypical person versus an ADHD person is really helpful. Can you talk more specifically to that? I know you've alluded to it, but I think this also explains for people who are wondering about that emotional side that we've asked about, right? Yeah, it it certainly is. Again, it falls into the arena of we think we know some things, but as time emerges and as technology and science uh, deepens in our capacity for knowing, well, the conversation will be very different, I'm sure, in 10 years from now. So one of the things that we do talk about on the biological uh, front, there are t- discussions about different brain regions, the, the frontal lobes that are function a bit differently and the gray matter that is different and the ventricles. There's all sorts of technical knowledge that we are, that we, we are emerging in our understanding of. And uh, among them, the conversation about the neurotransmitters and the way that the brain has trillions of these interconnected neural pathways. Imagine it's like like an underground subway system, like here in New York City, where I live, there's there's just this complicated train system and there's different tracks and this train goes down this one. And if you switch the track, it goes down that one. And there are certain tracks that we we don't even use. They're abandoned, but they're there. They're just not used. We don't run the train down those tracks. And the signals are used to give messages to where the train should go. Do we turn on this? Is it a green signal or red signal? And so there's one particular, we talk a lot about there's several neurotransmitters, serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, GABA. Dopamine has received a large amount of attention in recent years within the ADHD brain. And we understand that our threshold for, for action, for being re- reactive is typically higher. It takes more to get us stimulated into action. So if we were to imagine a meter, a person might, let's say we say a meter goes from zero to a hundred. I'm, I'm making up, I'm extrapolating a concept, zero to a hundred. Maybe the neurotypical person might need the meter to go, the dopamine meter has to hit 20, has to fill up, the meter has to fill up to 20. And when we hit 20, that's enough stimulation to generate action. 
Dopamine is very often a, a, a chemical implicated in both in rewards. When, when we eat a delicious ice cream sundae, it, it feels delicious and we get a reward. When, when we go on our phones and we're scrolling through social media and they know how to manipulate and, and, and get us within two seconds, dopamine hits, right? There's a whole idea of dopamine hits. Talk a lot about it these days. So in ADHD brain, the, the neurotypical brain, maybe I got to get to 20 and then I, I, I'm spurred into action. The ADHD brain needs to maybe hit 40 or 50 or in some cases 80 before I feel stimulated enough to go into action. I need a lot more dopamine um, because there's an underproduction of dopamine or, or the way that dopamine is produced, the way it travels down. Again, I'm, I'm really, I think simplification is important. The train travels in a particular way and we need to do things to shift that stimulus, right? Medication happens to be one way that we've figured out in a backdoor, backhanded way, it just worked. We still let it work. So we realized, oh, this medication, which we thought we were using for one thing, actually works for ADHD. It brings down that, that number from 40 down to 20. So I'm more inclined to take action sooner. I'll share something from my own life that I'm going through right now that I'm experimenting and exploring with, which it's been interesting. I'm, I'm going to go a little bit off tangent, Stacey, if that's, if that's okay. So one of the treatments, biomedical treatments that we're, we're excited about in, in, the, in the psychotherapeutic space is the advent of psychedelic medications and what they might do. And there's a lot of research that's coming out over the past 10, 15 years across the spectrum of different medications and, and medicines, whether it be psilocybin, which is what we talk about, the magic mushrooms. There's research in MDMA, there's research in LSD. A lot of these quote unquote drugs, which we now are terming medicines, which relegated as, as harmful or bad and, and subjugated, we've opened up the, 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 the space again. We welcome them back into the fold of, of, of FDA approved research methodologies, and we're learning a lot. The depression, for PTSD, for anxiety, et cetera, the list is growing and growing. One of the medications that has received FDA approval to treat of treatment-resistant depression, and in some cases, trauma, and in some cases, addiction, is, I mean, and it can be, it's prescribed and administered through a psychiatrist or through a nurse practitioner or through a, a medical practitioner who has the license to, to deliver this medicine. I myself recently began a ketamine treatment out of curiosity of its effects on ADHD. And my underlying depression that emerges and my underlying anxiety and all these emotional byproducts that emerge alongside my ADHD. And I wondered, because I have many friends who are psychiatrists or I trust and I speak to a deep about these matters. And we had, I had a conversation with a couple of my colleagues and he said, it's not yet FDA approved for ADHD. And I'm by no means advocating this path. And I've just started it myself. I'm a guinea pig. And I've done two sessions thus far. And they're two, three hour sessions. And I did I had my prescriber use the shot and it went subcutaneously to under my skin. I didn't do the IV version, et cetera, et cetera. And what I found thus far, it's been interesting. In the days that followed, the experience itself when you're in the window is a vastly wild experience. And it's a whole nother podcast, right? I don't know if you've done anything on it yet. We've actually done a ketamine show. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked about the benefits of 
creating that neuroplasticity, which you were speaking to. Yes. Exactly. Thank you. For, for, so you'll jump ahead, re reference back to the previous episode on ketamine, episode number or whatever it is. And you'll learn that the neuroplasticity piece of this idea that these train tracks, to go back to my analogy, that we were, were dormant, that we're not used to going to, maybe now could open up. And so I've tried it. And thus far, it's been fascinating. And then the days that followed, I was just more chill. I was more focused on things. I had less of this resistance towards things. I was calmer. And my thinking patterns have started to like this whole idea of optimization. I've called it out during one of my sessions, optimization I'm working on. So the neural processes here are fascinating. And we're just at the beginning of understanding. I love that you brought that up because I talk so much about neuroplasticity and I have a lot of listeners who have autoimmune disorders and who have had terrible experience with their own either medical history or being dismissed by medical practitioners. And I think we create those avoidance techniques and those neural pathways for ourselves that don't really serve us or we become orthorexic in our approach and different kinds of things. And so I talk a lot about the importance of building out these different pathways for yourself. And your analogy of it being a subway system and trains going off track is great. The one that I like is that we've built a pathway for ourselves, the, the Grand Canyon, right? Like the Colorado River has run for so long and so deep doing that particular pattern that our brain believes that is the, that's the path to take. And it takes a lot of effort to build that Y road off of the Grand Canyon and to say, I'm going to take this other path. And so the idea that there is an FDA approved medicine that can help create that neuroplasticity for us to make the digging easier, right? It doesn't solve the problem, but maybe Correct. you're coming in now with like a bulldozer instead of just hand shoveling that right. pathway for yourself. Right. Yeah. So you, you want to combine it with something like meditation, which when I, I've been practicing meditation, I talk a lot uh, uh, in the book a lot about mindfulness meditation, combining that kind of opening, let something like ketamine or other medicines or, or treatments can help, but you must do the work. And meditation to me is a great way to deepen the why uh, path for the water to run in a different way. And it's very, I've said for my ADHD, the most powerful thing I talk about at length in the book that I went through was when I started to practice yoga and meditation, I was able to go from being on 70 milligrams of Vyvanse at the time, which is a lot, down to five milligrams of Adderall as needed because I really did a lot of work, not only in the meditation, but also in my other techniques that I talk about at length in the book about time management and task management. But it, you can read, you can, there is plasticity to the brain. We can redirect, but we haven't yet seen that I can get rid of it, right? We are still living with and in relationship to our ADHD brain and our partners are going to be going through that and having compassion and care for them as they go along. That process is very important um, because it, it isn't a light switch that you flick on or off. It's more like a, a dial that you, you can bring, you could turn up the lights or, or by default, it always shuts back down. That's the thing. Every day you wake up, the lights go back down. You've got to put work in to each and every dial. And there are many of them to manipulate so that you have more clarity in that day or more effectiveness. And it's all about probabilities of success. That's my whole philosophy. Anyone who reaches out to me, 
and I offer, by the way, free 15-minute consultations. Go to my website. You can come reach out to me. I'll talk to anybody anywhere in the world. And we'll chat a little bit and see if I can offer some insight. And if we want to work together at more length, great. And I tell everybody, it's all about probabilities of success. That's the name of the game. Increase those probabilities. And it's a daily effort. Well, one of the things that you do that increases that probability is avoid a lot of technology. And before we even got on the call, we were talking about you're not very active on social media. And I think that is a huge factor that you talk about as a techno ADD, which you define as distraction caused by technology. And how I've always thought about it, being the parent of children that I'm watching consume technology and then immediately having increased symptoms is overstimulation. And how I've always described it to the kids is, okay, well, you've now activated, as you described earlier, right? Like you've reached the tippy top of that dopamine response center, like where you might have needed, the average person needs 20, you might needed 40 before. Now you need 80 because you've been operating in this space where you were given so many pleasure bells in this game that you were playing whatever, or on social media or whatever it is, that then when they leave that, when they turn the technology off, it is literal withdrawal. Right. It is like, in, and I say withdrawal in full seriousness because I've had a brother literally die from drug addiction. Like I am, I can 100% see that the addiction with someone who has an impulse control um, and with ADD, it increases likelihood of addiction, right? Like that the technology is creating that dopamine response in the overstimulation. And it makes it even difficult for my husband, who is a 42-year-old man, to regulate his use of technology. And he will find himself, like we're having a serious conversation with one of the kids who has come to us and is like, I need to talk with you. And as a parent, all hands on deck, right? Like when a kid comes to you proactively and is like, I want to talk about this thing, you put everything down and you're like, okay, I am here for you. Let's talk. And my husband can do that for like two minutes. And then all of a sudden his phone is in his hand and the kid and I are both like, what are you doing? Like, do you understand how disrespectful it is to the person who just asked if you can talk? And he's like, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize I was doing that. Puts his phone away, right? But it is like an addiction to... Because he's in an awkward, uncomfortable situation or whatever it is, right? Um, like he's looking for a dopamine hit in another way. Right. Yes, there, exactly. There's an urge to not now. I want to not now. And the phone brings that. Oh, like my, my brain gets, I can do it on the side, right? Like I can multitask, right? We're, we're great in multitasking. Yeah, it's real. Yeah, the struggle is real. Can you share about your theory, right? Like this, uh, you talk about how it's perceived now versus this theory that you have about how it will be perceived in the future with technology and ADD. I think it would be helpful for people to understand because it was really hard to tell from kindergarten to third grade, my oldest did not play video games. And that was like, I told him that he could not breathe there. Yeah how important that is from a doctor's perspective. You outline it in um, Refocused. The, the relationship is so, again, this is one of those 
everybody can relate, right? And that's why I wrote that whole section because it is my theory that these days, right? People always say it's overdiagnosed, it's overdiagnosed because we all could relate to the ADHD experience because technology has evolved in a way where, you know, like if you've ever seen the show Black Mirror on Netflix, which I love to reference and I show it to my students at, at, at the university, um, we, there are episodes where they show like we've implanted the contact lens into our eye and everyone we look at, my eye now can see everyone's reading the social scales. We're there already. We're totally fused with technology. And it really is dependent on now there's lawsuits against the major tech companies like Meta that, that they know about this. They know. Now they manipulated this knowledge with this knowledge. And I was, I, I'll never forget 20 years ago, I was brought into a, um, a think tank from a tech company. And they were asking us as researchers, what do we know about this thing called dopamine? What do we know? What can we offer them about how this works? And we, me and my colleagues, we shared what we knew from the ivory tower of knowledge and research. And then like I watched, and this is before the apps were out yet. And I watched as these tech companies utilize this knowledge base and, and build platforms to make us fused and dependent on this dopamine hit so that any one of us, and especially if you are a neurodivergent brain, biologically, genetically speaking, you're, you're, you're up the creek, which is why when I said I don't use personally as much social media, I started everything. I, was, I did a podcast 15 or 12 years ago at 30 episodes where I ran a podcast like, like yours, and it was great before, but, but to continue it, I, I knew I needed to dedicate myself to be used with technology. I had to be posting all the time and working, and I just didn't want to do it to myself. I just, until this day, people always tell me I have great, I have interesting ideas and I'm personable and I'm out there and I really would work well in the social media, but I just, even my own kids, I have kids, my kids are like superstars and they're dying for me to start a YouTube channel for the family. Down to my three-year-old daughter who's like, sunshine, let's do it. I will not yet. I haven't figured out a way to do it, even though it would be fun because I know the downside. And I think that ADHD is emerging more and more. And I think there is going to be such a thing as techno ADD. And there's been research that even shows, starting to show that even adults who did not show any ADHD of children, it was non-existent, that suddenly now as adults, it can be full-blown manifesting of ADHD. And my theory about why that is, is because of our relationship with technology, how it has shifted our brains, the path and the, the water to the Grand, Grand Canyon a new Grand Canyon that, that never existed before. We didn't have it before. So yeah, now that kids are going to be on technology from earlier ages, my, your, my kids are young. I have a 10-year-old, an eight, five, and a three-year-old. They want phones already. They want, they want, I'm trying to hold back as long as I can. You can tell them none of, my, none of my children had phones till middle school. That was my rule. Okay. Middle school. I'm fighting for eighth grade. My goal is get to eighth grade. My goal <laughs> yeah. is 13, eighth grade. That's what I'm trying yeah. to, and I don't know. I'm only, I have a 10 year old. We'll see how it goes. It's hard and it's creating ADD like brains, what I call yeah. tech ADD brains. And we have to work hard at it. We've got to work hard to create the boundaries. It's a relationship. It's a relationship that you have with your technology. And we must understand and couch it as such. You're in a relationship with your husband, your relationship with your kids. You're in a relationship with technology. Years ago, I wrote a blog called Dear Technology, where I wrote letters to technology 
And I would write, dear technology, as if I was relating to it. And I was trying to make that point. And then technology would write me back. Hi, David. Here's my response to you and your concerns about us. And the whole point was you, you need to write letters and, and be in communication with technology and make boundaries the way you would in a relationship and make limitations and set up time to be together. You, you want to be together. Yes. But with safety in, in place and with safety words and with safety, you have to be safe about it. I could go on and on about Yeah, this. no, and I think that's, it's so important. And also that people with ADHD be aware that because it is a relationship and especially like neurodiversity and social cues are sometimes someone doesn't fully understand how someone else might be perceiving their behavior. And whereas my husband is pulling out his phone because he's like trying to soothe his way through a difficult discussion, how it's perceived by the other people in the room is disrespect, right? How it's perceived by other people in the room be is that the relationship with that phone is more important than the relationship with the child asking questions, which I know he does not intend, but perception of other people is important for those who are taking the action to understand. It's and the signaling and a hundred percent I yeah. Feel. And and if you don't want to be the person that's just justifying all of your behaviors with, well, that's because I have ADHD and you want to have healthy relationships with people. That's certainly an area where I know we as a family have to regulate. Like it's not you can't just like moderate something like any addiction. You can't just say, well, I'm going to have three beers a week. Like if you have an addiction problem then what are the hard and fast rules around technology? Okay. So and then, yeah. Can I jump in on that one? Yeah. It's so tricky with technology because it's not like drugs. Well, Some would argue, right? Yeah. So I'm very careful not to tell people. Yeah, you might it's more like food, right? Like you have exactly, to have some of it. Yeah. Exactly. You might choose abstinence, right? You might choose it completely. And that might, that's great. That's a surefire way to do it yeah. is just delete your social media apps. It's the best thing you can do to gain uh, time and space and, and awareness in your life. But just get rid of social media. It's the best thing to do. There's a reason why they're being sued all over the place. Get rid of it. If you can't, if you can't, we have to figure out the moderation model for what works best for you. But it, it's an active process. And by the way, there are upsides of technology, of course. Uh, I, we haven't mentioned in my bio, one, one of the things that I'm very excited and proud about is that I'm on um, the advisory board of an app called Agave Health. Agave Health. And it is a, an app built for the adult ADHD community. I wrote the content for the CBT protocols and I um, advised the, the, the founders of uh, Agave on their protocols. It provides you with coaching. You can turn on the phone and you can have a live coach, right? One-on-one, -on -one. you can type to the coach, you can write the coach, you can do modules, there's meditation, there's a whole community. This Agave app is incredible. And I think it's, I, I know from our research already on it, because we're just a year out of the gate, it's helping people tremendously. So uh, I'm in favor of that, right? Like if it'll help. Yeah. But no, absolutely. I'm I'm glad you clarified that because I do think that it is more like food than it is like beer, right? Like we can have a very disordered relationship, but we still need to eat. And defining like what those parameters are and following them, I find is very helpful to the people in my life with that neurodiversity. And my husband loves to learn is a very curious person. And so he listens to podcasts, right? And I find that where things go wrong for him 
is when he goes down a black hole on social media, right? Like when it is the thing that autoplays the next thing that autoplays the next thing. And then all of a sudden he's sucked into something he didn't realize he meant to be. Mm -hmm. So I think this is where working with someone like yourself with executive function coaching and working on mindfulness and CBD from a therapeutic perspective. I know you talk in the book about how important this hybrid approach is. And I think a lot of people do one or the other or worst case scenario, just medicate. And none of that is helpful. As we talked about, like this neuroplasticity and creating these new pathways, the medicine can help, but you've got to do some of the work. And so whether you're reading your book or you're working with Dr. Set as a coach or you're on this app, what, whatever the thing is that works for someone. And in my husband's case, it was marrying someone with a lot of compassion and That's like, the best thing. exactly like he, partner. he married his executive coach. I think just having to figure out ways to set yourself up for success. And if you find yourself in a situation where you're not happy with something that you're doing, you have the power to change that. That is not toxic positivity. That is you taking ownership of this thing is happening to me and I don't like it. I am going to build the Y train track. It's going to take effort. It's going to take time. It's all these things, but it is going to be worth it because I don't want to be stuck in the situation that I'm stuck in right now. So I always like to leave listeners, and I think this is the best way to do this, with something positive or actionable that they can take to be of service to work on themselves, that they can take to move forward. And I know you talked a lot about meditation and mindfulness, but I'd love to hear your ideas on what is something that someone can take away today, not feel overwhelmed with all the things or all the guilt or all the shame, but rather like, okay. I can be in control and I can do this one thing consistently and it, it would help me. What would you suggest? So uh, I tend to point to my clients and when I give lectures out and about, I have found that the most impactful tool or, or teaching that holds the line is to, to work on your daily how to get through your daily goals, your, your task list. And I have this whole system that I talk about in the book and even on my website, I, I have this download that you can get of what I call the three-tier uh, management system. And this is the one tool that people have told me over and over again has changed their life. It is a, a philosophy and a way of seeing things. And I'm going to give you a very simple version of it. If you take a piece of paper and you turn it horizontal and you draw a line down the middle, and then you make seven columns along from the top to the bottom, seven columns, right? So you have seven columns on top, seven columns on the bottom. On the top, those columns are to be used for the categories of things you do in your life. So one column might be your, your children. One column might be the project at work that you're working on. Another column might be grocery shopping. Another one might be your finances, et cetera, et cetera. And you write out at the beginning of the week, all the stuff that you got to do, not only this week, but even just what's coming up. I told you, I wrote down, pay my insurance that was four months away. I still wrote it in this column because I need to externalize. Point here is you have to externalize and get out of your mind everything you can, as much as you can into this limited area, right? There's a reason for that. So I have my seven categories up top. On the bottom, 
Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, days of the week. And on this one piece of paper, you now do work in the beginning of the day. What from the top level can I do today? And you make your list. And this will give a dashboard view of things you got to take care of, things you need to be mindful of. And it's not about 100% success. To me, I'm all about 80 to 85%. That's the gold now. 80 is the new 100, I say in my book. If I can get 80%, and that's on a good day. For most average, maybe I'm going to get 50%, 60%, and that's okay. Shifting your expectation of what it means to be successful, having a way to externalize and break things down into smaller parts. If you can manage the system, and I don't do it every day, I do it a lot of days, but when I do it, my probabilities increase. When I don't do it, my probabilities decrease. I skip days, weeks. I've even skipped months with this system. I'm not using it at all. And I forgive myself. I give myself care and love. And I come back to it six months later and I try it again. This is the number one tool that I teach people. And I'm very proud of developing it. And I offer it up, up on my website for free. And you can learn more about it through the book, et cetera, et cetera. But that's what I would leave people with. If they can get their hands on this three-tier mindset. And I love the idea of not holding yourself to being perfect about it. Because even as someone who I do think I'm on some sort of spectrum who is operating mainstream, like there are tons of things on my to-do list that I don't get to every day. And in my brain, I'm like, oh, I can do that tomorrow. It's not time sensitive, blah, 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 blah. Right. But like that perfectionist mindset, I think, becomes that rejection sensitivity of like rejecting yourself if you don't accomplish it perfectly on that one day is what drives my husband to then be like, and now I'm not going to use this list anymore because I failed. And so instead, holding yourself to like an 80% standard or something like that to give yourself the grace and the compassion, I think is really the important part yeah. about that system from what I'm hearing from you as well. Yeah, 100%. I would also add, because I, in quick, I gave you the two tiers. The third tier is where you go hour by hour. Mm -hmm. Take that daily and put it into like, where's the flow of my day looking like? But above all of that, to your point, self-compassion and love is it's the it's the oil that keeps the system moving you're gonna you're gonna screech to a halt it happens all the time every one of us can tell stories where i just screech to a halt but the love and the self-compassion is the oil to get you moving again to loosen the joints up i'll get back to it it's okay it's not about perfection 80s and 100 i'll come back to it so i really appreciate Stacey, you're highlighting that. And overall, this has been such a lovely conversation. Your listeners are so lucky to have you guiding them through such interesting conversations. And I've looked at your list of topics you've covered. And it's really fascinating. And I commend you for the research that you do and how much you spent time looking through the book and came so prepared. You are really um, a master at your trade. And I'm really grateful that I had this opportunity to, to sit with you today. Thank you. That's very kind. And I appreciate your time as well. And listeners, I encourage you to check out drsit.com with two T's. And as you said, there's resources, there's coaching and consults, all kinds of stuff if you want to follow up. And listeners, I want to also thank you for tuning in today because in doing so, you are prioritizing your own self. We always appreciate your willingness to be open to grow through your own personal change. As always, no one is perfect, but by listening and learning and unlearning, we can choose to become better versions of ourselves for ourselves. If you'd like to receive the show without ads, you can do so at patreon.com slash the whole view. 
where you can get all of our shows delivered straight to your inbox ad-free. And as a reminder, I would so appreciate if you can go subscribe to the show, leave a review, refer it to someone. If you listen to the show today and you're like, gosh, my best friend would love this show, send a link. It makes a huge difference, not just to us and our ability to continue doing the show, but to your best friend. So thank you so much. And Dr. Set, I appreciate your time for being here today and sharing so much of yourself. It's takes a lot to be vulnerable with rejection sensitivity ADHD to open yourself up and to share about the experiences that you do in your new book, ADHD Refocused. And listeners will put a link for everything in the show notes for you. Hope to hear from you soon and we'll be back again next week. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.